The Stein Online Clubland Q&A begins right now. Welcome to you all. This is another live Clubland Q&A around the world here on Stein Online. It is absolutely fantastic to have you tuned in. This is not Mark Stein, if you haven't been able to tell. This is his uh, Deputy Senior Vice Undersecretary, Vice Deputy President of Canadian Affairs. Every time he introduces me, it gets uh, another adjective in the pre-nominals. But I am holding down the fort here, the substitute guest host to the substitute guest host. And I thank you very much for uh, joining us, whether you're listening live or listening to the recording after the fact. You are more than welcome to be here. And in keeping with tradition... It is just after 3 p.m. North American Eastern Time, making it, uh, what is it, a little uh, siesta, 2 p.m. in the Canadian prairies. It is 4 p.m. in the Maritimes, uh, 4.30 in Newfoundland and Labrador. And in the uh, European continent, we have 9 p.m. in Paris and Berlin, 10 p.m. in Kiev and Moscow, and the, uh, what is it, I think probably 11.30 in Tehran, so uh, feel free to make from that what you will, and 12.45 a.m. in Kathmandu, as well as 3 a.m. in Singapore, and for the early risers, Saturday morning, 6 a.m. in Sydney, 8 a.m. in Auckland, so wherever you are, I appreciate this very much. It is quite interesting, because my time the last few weeks has been mostly immersed in this Canadian thing going on, which you may or may not have questions about. You can ask questions. They don't have to be Canadian things, although I, I typically Canadian content tends to find its way into these uh, things when I've guest hosted. And I think part of that is because there is just this like strange mythical quality about Justin Trudeau's Canada that is very much like an animal in a zoo that the other ones around don't quite want to live with the animal in the zoo, but they're fascinated by what it's doing. And I'm happy to demystify that to the best of my abilities here. Uh, but we do have a bunch of questions. And if you disagree with anything I say, feel free to throw those in the question section as well. And we will get into a raucous tete-a-tete as the hour goes on. The first question comes from Eric Dale. It is not Canadian content by the looks of it. He says, Andrew and fellow club members, is it just me or does conservative media seem oddly in sync with their talking points since the midterms here in the U.S.? All of Murdoch's properties, PJ Media and other conservative websites seem unusually urgent to move on from Trump and embrace Ron DeSantis. The primaries and caucuses are over a year away. It reminds me of when WikiLeaks exposed journal lists where mainstream media members were confirmed firm to be coordinating how they frame stories and how they utilize democratic talking points. Has conservative media become as top-down and obedient as the mainstream media? 
Well, first off, I think the observation is incredibly spot on. I think a lot of these outlets are in lockstep. Now, I don't think they're all taking any top-down marching orders, but I don't think they're at the same time immune to the groupthink that has been dominant in the left-wing media for quite some time. And it is interesting, and I want to talk about this in a couple of different ways, because I think you're right that there is this tendency among all of the so-called conservative journalists, commentators, the pundit class, to say that Ron DeSantis is the guy now. And to be fair, I would be very happy with Ron DeSantis as president. In fact, I think more people have been talking about Ron DeSantis being president than Ron DeSantis has ever talked about him being president. And at the same time, I would also take Donald Trump over Joe Biden or pretty much any other Democrat in a heartbeat. But I do think there is this shift now, and I think a lot of people are adopting this idea that Donald Trump is old news, Ron DeSantis is the future, And some of them, and this is where I think the groupthink mentality is very important here, because some of them don't actually believe it. Some of them, in fact, I'd say most of them love Trump. They were happy with him. They want Trump reelected. But conservatives usually end up at some point going down that road of wanting to be liked by the left. And they look at Ron DeSantis and they look at Donald Trump and say, okay, what if we can get the Trumpian policies without the Trump? What if we what if we can de-Trump Trump? And there tends to be this calculation that leads them to believe Ron DeSantis is the less Trumpy version of Trump. He's going to give us tough on immigration. He's going to oppose lockdowns and vaccine mandates. He's going to do all the standard Republican tax cuts and all that. But he's not going to be hated by the media exactly like Donald Trump will be. And I think this is obviously a lie. And I think on some level, everyone has to realize it's a lie, but they don't. They People get so tired, and in some ways, I understand it, because I think Republicans got so tired for the last, oh, I don't know, 20, what is it, 2015, basically. But since, since then, for the last seven years, they've gotten so tired of being called a racist and so tired of having to defend being Trump voters as though it's just this egregious sin. How dare you? How could you? And I think at a certain point that has just graded on people so much that they're saying, okay, maybe we don't need to own the libs exactly to the same extent that we did when Trump was there. Maybe we can get all the good stuff about Trump without the bad stuff, and that's going to be Ron DeSantis. And I, I think that why this is wrong is that it's a fundamental failure to look at every single Republican candidate that's ever been there, no matter how squishy no matter how centrist, no matter how moderate, no matter how much uh, of a sellout they are, every Republican candidate is the new Hitler. And, And once they cease to be a threat to the left, they become the benchmark for what a Republican should be. I mean, like, I remember, and I'm not that old, but I remember when George W. Bush was a war criminal. I remember when he was a fascist. I remember when he was a Nazi. I remember when he was just killing children. I, like, I remember when George Bush was the worst person to walk on the planet. It's not that he would worship the devil, it's that the devil would worship him. And now George Bush has somehow become the model Republican. 
Oh, why can't they all be like George Bush? Mitt Romney. I mean, Mitt Romney was the misogynist who was flipping through pages of binders full of women. Mitt Romney drove around with a dog duct taped to the roof of his car or whatever that story was. Uh, he was Hitler. He was the uh, architect behind, you know, the coming of the new Stepford Wives of America. And now Mitt Romney is the moral conscience of Canada's conservative or of the U.S. There's a Freudian slip if ever there was one. The, the moral conscience of the Republican movement or the conservative movement, if you can even call him a part of either. And it goes on and on. So the idea that you can have a Ron DeSantis in there that's going to be immune from that is, is just laughable. He, he angers the left in the exact same way that Trump does because the, the left didn't actually care about Trump's uncivility. The left never cared about that. What the left thought was that he was a Republican, he was a conservative-ish, and he threatened their hegemony effectively. And once someone else is that threat, they're going to move all their attention to that. So this is all a long way of saying that I think conservatives, even when they claim they don't, conservatives internalize that. And conservatives start to do that calculation. And I mean, there's the old Buckley rule, which has been, I think, very much misinterpreted and, and also misquoted over time. And the Buckley rule was effectively uh, how it's how it's discussed is that you should vote for the most electable, most conservative candidate. And the, and the logical response to that is, is which is it? Is it the most electable or is it the most conservative? Which one wins out when there's a conflict? And I think it's very much the case that electability conservative feel matters more than conservatism. And I understand the arguments in both directions. I really do. I understand that, well, you know, if you have the most ironclad beliefs and principles imaginable, but you get 3% of the vote, what good were the principles? And similarly, you could say that if you get elected and you stand for nothing, what good is that? But all of that is to say that conservatives have to understand that you can't de-Trump Trump. And this is where, no matter what, if DeSantis gets in the race, and I'm assuming he will be, it is going to be a bloody, bloody primary, uh, primary process. It will. It is going to be absolutely insane. And there's a reason that I don't think Ron DeSantis would come out on top of Donald Trump, despite whatever polling is saying, and that is that no one is going to win a knuckle fight, a street fight like Donald Trump will. No one will. And, and that's the thing. You can talk about, oh, well, you know, he made this comment and says this, but like no one is going to win a street fight against Donald Trump. He is better at this than everyone else is. And again, whether he's ideal or not it is not the point here. He's in the race. I will be perfectly candid with you that I, I think, you know, if, if all things were equal, I like Ron DeSantis more, but not for reasons of electability. I like Ron DeSantis more just because I think Ron DeSantis is actually a more reliable movement conservative in a way that I don't think Donald Trump ever was. But I'm not one of these people that's also getting into this thing where one has to get out of the way. But I think that that is going to be what ends up uh, having to happen here if, if, if not... Uh, there will be just absolute carnage on the debate stage time and time again. So uh, that is one Canadian's perspective in any event for what it's worth here. George writes, here we go. I said Canadian content always finds a way to seep in here. George writes, Andrew, I've read with some personal queasiness that the Girl Guides of Canada will be renaming the Brownies in the near future, claiming it had caused personal harm to people of color. 
Uh, this is, by the way, a very true story. Uh, yes, uh, personal harm to people of color. And the question continues, the new name will be announced next year and it will take place later next year. I'm rooting for the new name to be the Little Karens or Petite Karens, just to uh, try to get some French content into my message. You may recall uh, during the crushing of liberty and freedom in Quebec, a somewhat iconic picture of a little girl holding a sign reading, the trucks are coming to save us. Has anyone asked her what caused her personal harm? Well, that is a fantastic question, George, and I, I thank you for it. So the backstory of this is that in uh, Girl Guides in the United States, in uh, Girl Guide or sorry, Girl Scouts in the United States, Girl Guides in Canada, the lower level for girls age seven to ten, I believe it is, is called brownies. Now, I had to do, I've never researched the history of brownies in the context of Girl Guides. I have researched the history of brownies in terms of the chocolate delight, but we're not talking about that today. Uh, brownies were originally called rosebuds. They were switched to brownies. Uh, Lord Baden-Powell, who was the uh, architect of the scouting movement, didn't like rosebuds. Uh, and he said, basically, the girls didn't like it. So he changed the name. And it is from the story, The Brownies, by Juliana Horatia Ewing, the English writer, uh, and they were basically nothing to do with anything about ethnic minorities. A brownie in Scottish folklore is a household spirit or hobgoblin. Now, I don't know how many seven-year-old Canadian girls would like to be compared to hobgoblins, but uh, they're not offended because they're being compared to Scottish hobgoblins. They are offended because they are supposedly, and I've yet to hear of anyone actually offended by this, uh, uncomfortable with the fact that it seems to be an ethnic slur of some kind. And they determined that it was a barrier to racialized girls and women. So I, I don't know what this means about their big like chocolate cookie sales uh, campaign every year. Maybe they have to switch to all vanilla. Uh, but then that's no, then it's vanilla privilege. So I don't know what you're able to do there. But uh, it is interesting. So George mentioned in his question the timeline. Let me point out here that in November of 2022, so that's now, they've announced that they're going to rename it in January of 2023 and then put the new name in place by September 2020, uh, by September 2023. So uh, something occurs to me here, which is that maybe if something is so terrible and so racist and so offensive, you don't take a year to put it in effect. Or perhaps... Just perhaps no one is actually offended by this. I mean, this strikes me as back in uh, the early 2000s when there was this big push in Canadian media to stop referring to uh, fishermen as fishermen, and they should be called fishers or fisher people. And it was the women in the fishing industry, the fisher women, uh, who said, no, 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 screw that. We're, we've worked hard, and we want to be called fishermen. That is who we are. That is what we are. And they pushed back against it. And in this case, I, I don't think there's anyone prepared to push back against it, because uh, we, we have to neutralize everything. So uh, surely, like, if you want to go back to scouting, you could find some problematic characterizations in uh, Jungle Book, which is, of course, the a book by Rudyard Kipling, after which a lot of the uh, leader names and other parts of the experience of scouting have been taken. There's probably more problematic stuff in Rudyard Kipling, not that I'm proposing we cancel him, than there is in the name Brownies. But it is, I, again, it's so troublesome that these things happen and people will say, well, 
you know, I've chosen my battles. I've decided it's not the hill to die on. And, you know, the name of the brownies, it doesn't really matter that much, you know, as long as my daughter can be in it. And uh, they're going to capitulate. And it's unfortunate because this is something that has meaning to people. And it's something that has history. It's something that has pedigree. And because someone claimed that someone else was offended, it uh, becomes uh, now something that is rendered into extinction. Chris writes, uh, Andrew Joy Pullman at The Federalist had a wonderful essay this week that touched on issues like election analysis, demographics, civilizational collapse, all the good stuff indeed. Uh, He says, basically, she pointed out that married men, married women, single women, sorry, let me get this right, Chris. Married men, married women, and single men all voted in favor of the Republicans in the midterms, but single women went with the Dems, and that's uh, by 37%, and that's a whopping 44% shift from single men. Pullman correlates this with the fact that women in general and single women in particular tend to gravitate towards professions where their main function is to enforce compliance or to exert other forms of control. One might say they tend to be Karens, but I can't because that's my wife's name. What do you think we can do to get younger women to wake up, get hitched, come to terms with their biology and become creative and happy before they all turn into cat ladies? And I was worried about brownies being a little bit too controversial. And now Chris is uh, saying, how can we get women to get married, come to terms with their biology and avoid turning into cat ladies? So uh, let me first say that I my vested interest in uh, encouraging women to get married uh, got weaker some years ago when I got married. And all of a sudden, I, I somehow found a woman that was taking that advice. And I still wonder if uh, her marriage uh, to me was for no other reason than, you know, because someone told her she had to get married. And uh, in any case, she chose me, and I'm very grateful for it. And uh, people, I, I mean, it's such a difficult one because th- there's the libertarian in me that says yeah, people can do what they want. And I think a lot of, in a lot of cases, when you talk about governments trying to start managing family, it will never go in the right direction. And I mean, even Hungary is getting a lot of pushback from trying to have very pro-family policies. So you're, you're left with civil society doing this. And, and I think as Chris points out here, in civil society, no one's doing this. In education, no one is uh, putting forward this idea of family. And in some, many, I'd say, uh, political movements and all of these NGOs, it, it seems to be very much against that. And... We have taught a generation that, just to put one example on, that abortion is uh, the way you preserve your independence. And it's not just about some tragic thing that you have to do under tragic circumstances in a last resort. No, we're told that it's a way that you can go and be successful and have a career. And, you know, comedians will get up there. There was one on SNL that, you know, did this whole bit about abortion, talking about how abortion's the reason that, you know, she's a famous comedian. And... It's, it's quite disheartening that women who derive great pleasure and meaning and purpose from having families have had that decision essentially reframed as though they are themselves victims of the patriarchy and as though uh, this was something that held them back, as though they're not allowed to derive meaning, uh, derive meaning from that. And it, it's quite unfortunate, and, and I don't know what the solution is. I, I think that I mean, Mark has done tremendous work, better than anyone else in the world, 
at talking about demography, but it's very difficult in a very selfish age to convince someone to get married and have children just so uh, their country doesn't become, you know, overrun by Democrats who are having more children. Not that that's ever the case, but you know what I mean? Like, it's hard to get someone on board with the demographic trend when their decision is one rooted in a very selfish question. I don't even mean selfish in a judgmental way. I just mean selfish in the literal way of of, of the interest to the self. So if you have an answer, chime in in the comments. I would love to hear it and share it with Chris. Elisa writes, welcome back, Andrew. It is good to have you back. Uh, would you tell us your view of Justin Trudeau? <laughs> I should have pulled the audio of this. Justin Trudeau and Rishi Sunak's sickeningly sweet call to Zelensky or make that Volodymyr. And two, would you comment on the content of the call itself? I'm not even sure Zelensky answered. How are we to know who was on the other end of that call anyway? So this was absolutely fantastic. It came out uh, at, I don't know, whatever day it was, I think uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Justin Trudeau and uh, Rishi, Rishi, Rishi Rich, as Mark calls him, Rishi Sunak, who are starting this like buddy comedy bromance of sorts, which is, I, I hope that Rishi gets like the Liz Trust 40 days and out thing, just so I don't need to see more of these videos. But uh, Rishi and Justin were at uh, the sidelines of the G20 in Bali, and they decided to call up Zelensky. And at number 10 Downing Street published this very weirdly edited video. And if you watch the video of this call of two G7, G20 leaders to Zelensky, the one thing that's missing from the call is Zelensky. It's like, it's, it's, the, it's like the one end of the phone call and it's like edited around so you never actually hear Zelensky. And I'm not saying Zelensky wasn't on the call. It was just like a very weird thing and, and proof that they weren't actually interested in Zelensky. They were interested in themselves. And watching the video, they could have just as easily been recording a voice memo on their phones without Zelensky there. But it's like, I don't know, it's like if you're pretending you're talking to a girlfriend that doesn't exist, and it's like someone can hear one end of the conversation, and you're like, no, there's definitely, I'm definitely talking. There's definitely someone on the other end of the line here. No, you can't hear them, but I'm, I'm talking to her right now. So that's what they were doing. But I, I can't really comment on the content as such, because there was no content. The one thing that did jump out at me and I wish I see I can't prepare for a Clubland Q&A because I never know what people are going to ask me. But Justin Trudeau, who like loves dressing up in costumes, he loves taking on different characters, decided to just be Ukrainian for the call. If you listen to it, he like has this weird, thick, like Ukrainian Russian accent when he says Volodymyr. And this is a guy who is uh, as bilingual as they come. He has this like weird accentless English and French. And then he's on the phone. He's like, oh yeah, hey, how's it going? Hello, Volodymyr. And he like, all of a sudden he just sounds like he's out of some 1980s Cold War movie on just the word. Volodymyr. And then after he says Volodymyr, he goes right back to the normal Justin Trudeau voice. I would actually prefer if he spoke in a Ukrainian accent more often. It would at least be more entertaining. But uh, I, I think it was the, uh, it was the, like just the epitome of virtue signaling when he gets up there and there's like a phone call on which nothing happens at a G20 summit at which nothing happens. And uh, at the end of it, we're just like only looking at Rishi Sunak and Justin Trudeau. Simon writes, Hi, Andrew. What's your view on bang in the middle 
centrist political ideology. I don't know if this is like a general question or if there's a, a specific context that I am uh, missing here. But uh, in general, I, I find, look, if you're a centrist because you are a centrist, then good on you. If you're, if you're someone who doesn't have a, a formed ideological worldview that aligns with what you'd call, you know, liberal or conservative or libertarian or popular. I mean, I guess populist I have qualms with as an ideology, but nevertheless, that if you're just centrist, fine. What I don't like is the belief that centrism is inherently a compromise. No, I mean, because a centrism drifts left. And, and this is the thing. Centrist institutions, centrist societies, centrist countries all drift left. And I have a lot of respect for John O'Sullivan's first law on this, which, as John told me once, it's also O'Sullivan's only law. But O'Sullivan's first law was, I think, a very important one, that any organization or enterprise that is not expressly right-wing will become left-wing over time. And, and I think that oftentimes the left is completely happy to position themselves as centrist because they know that centrism is going to be leftism. So uh, conservatives should never just accept that as a compromise and say, okay, well, it's centrist. Yeah, it's not conservative, but at least it's not left-wing because you give it five minutes and it will be. Uh, Johnny writes, I just read that Mark is away today. So Andrew, Justin T and Rishi S had a bro call with Zelensky this week. What are these globalist frat boys getting out of the Ukraine war? Are they actually no more developed in their thinking and motivation than college kids with a cause? Save Ukraine on my gap year. Or are they up to something else? Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of mixed on, on that because like Canadian conservatives get very mad that Justin Trudeau is dropping like, I don't know, $500 bajillion on Ukraine. And I was, you know, I get the spending issue, but there's a part of me that thinks, you know, if he were to spend all his time focusing on Ukraine policy and none on Canadian policy, Canadians would probably be in a bit of a better spot. So I, I actually love when Justin Trudeau is at these foreign junkets because nothing happens at them. And when nothing's happening at them, it is easier for me as a Canadian to get by. So I think that's in one case where it is. But I, I think I'll ask a lot of people here to think about why all the world leaders have aligned with Ukraine. And I think the simplest reason is at the beginning, Ukraine was the victim. And I, I wholeheartedly believe that. I think that the situation is complex when you start talking about the domestic politics of Ukraine and Russia and all that. But I think Russia was the aggressor. Ukraine was not. And I think the world community responded in kind. But it, it's the cultural support of Ukraine and the whitewashing of the ickiness of it that I, I find to be not all that surprising, but certainly noteworthy here. And, and the fact that, you know, Sean Penn is giving uh, Volodymyr Zelensky his Oscar to hold on to for safekeeping. And you've got this like continuous pipeline of Hollywood celebrities going into the war zone where there is no war taking place to the places they go. But we're supposed to view them with uh, bravery and courage and valor and, and all of that. And for, for world leaders, it's now the thing you do. You just, because it's an excuse for them to all get together. Like every, every discussion now has some Ukraine component. I mean, Ukraine is not in the G20. So uh, like the fact that Zelensky is getting calls from people in the G20, or as uh, Zelensky calls it, the, uh, the G19, 
uh, because he he didn't want to legitimize Russia's part of it. Like it, it's all about Ukraine now. I mean, the World Economic Forum uh, last May when I, I was there was uh, partially about Ukraine. So it's given a backdrop for all of these globalists to continue to get together. And I'm not saying that's predominantly the reason they're doing it, but I think they're certainly taking advantage of it. And you know, if it's not a climate summit, it's another international incident response group on the Russia-Ukraine war. Uh, Jamie writes, I, th- I, sh- I should probably do this one at the end, but I'll, I might forget it. So I'll read it now. Uh, Jamie writes, is it true you're going to be joining Mark on the Adriatic Sea in July? Any previews about what we can expect? I, I, I don't mean to make fun of Jamie, whether it's a, a he or a she, it doesn't matter. But uh, like, is it true that like, why would Mark lie about that? Like promoting that I'm going to be somewhere is like a way to kill your sales. So I, I don't think he would lie about that, but I am going to be there. It is going to be our third time on the Mark Stein cruise. And we've got uh, some of the fan favorites back, people like Michelle Bachman and the aforementioned John O'Sullivan and Tal Bachman, who always uh, keeps us entertained in the evening in the crow's nest where I had the great privilege of doing a duet with Michelle Bachman last time. So with uh, Michelle Bachman and Tal Bachman and me, we called it Bachman Bachman Overdrive. But uh, it is always a great time. We've also got uh, James Bosnerdly Golden coming. We've got Alexandra Marshall and Eva Vlardingerbrook. And I may be, for, I hope I'm not forgetting anyone, but it's going to be an absolutely great time. We are leaving from Trieste in July, on uh, July 7th, I believe. And then we're going down the Adriatic to uh, Montenegro, to Croatia, to Greece, and then uh, coming back to Trieste. And I was actually in the, I think I did the last Clubland Q&A or one of the last Clubland Q&As from Albania. So this is like my second time on the Adriatic in as many years. But I think I'm going to have more fun on the Mark Stein cruise than I did uh, day tripping to Kosovo. Not that that wasn't absolutely enjoyable nonetheless. The uh, next question here is from Michelle, who I actually met on, I believe, the first Mark Stein cruise. It might have been the second. It might have been both, actually. Uh, She writes, hi, Andrew. This is really a question for Mark. Oh, never mind. Uh, (laughs) No, she says, I appreciated his reprise of the Monk debate of 2016, and I'm wondering what's happened since. I mean, since uh, Rosengard and Mullenbeek and Cologne and, well, most cities in the north of England, how, how have circumstances changed, if at all, or is it all just gang rape, been there, done that? Is Doug Saunders still at the Globe and Mail? I think Doug Saunders is still at the Globe and Mail. He might be retired now, or he, he might be a columnist. I, no, I think he's still he's still there as a columnist, yes. But it's, it's interesting, because there was a wave in around that time of you know, 2015, 2016, where everyone was interested in the migrant stories, and, and even the left had to acknowledge it. I mean, when you had Germany taking in one-eightieth of its population, about one million in the span of a year, no one could be all that shocked that there were adjustment issues, to say the least, to put like the the charitable spin on it that the left uses, and uh, Sweden and England and all of these things. And, and then everyone just moved on from it. And I, I think the problem was that it got so big they couldn't ignore it. So what you noticed if you read some of the literature and like The Guardian at the time or whatnot was that they had to come up with very weird ways to rationalize it. And they started talking about, oh, well, you know, we need to offer these people support and they've been traumatized. And, and there was just a refusal to accept 
what everyone else knew, which is that you cannot have mass unchecked migration. You cannot have a refugee resettlement that somehow brings fighting age, able-bodied men over who have nothing better to do than harass the women domestically. And it was quite shameful. And, and there was never any political accountability there. I mean, you fast forward six, seven years, Angela Merkel's gone, but she left on her own terms. She wasn't forced out. There was no political scandal. Same as the grooming gang scandals in the United Kingdom. There have been reports after report after report, but no one has been held accountable. No one has lost their job and been, you know, dragged down to the Old Bailey over this, and, and no one ever will. So I think that, yes, it happens. It happens in smaller numbers, and it has, it's lower than in, in psychology. There's that term, the subjective threshold at which your unconscious thoughts become conscious. And th it's been kept below the subjective threshold. So no one needs to acknowledge it. No one needs to talk about it. And we can all just pretend it's not happening. Julia writes, I read your moving Substack piece about Canada's euthanasia laws. Horrible what they're doing. Any hope of changing it? Um... Ooh, this is a, a tricky one, but uh, what Julia is uh, talking about here, and by the way, thank you for reading my, my Substack. I do a, a newsletter there. What Julia is referring to is that in Canada, they passed in uh, two, just under two years ago. So it was November 20, sorry, March 2021. They passed a bill that dramatically expanded access to assisted suicide in Canada, which has been legal since 2016. And to get an assisted suicide, you have had to have a physical ailment that is, the words in the law, grievous and irremediable with a death that is reasonably foreseeable, a reasonably foreseeable natural death. So you have to be dealing with a really terrible disease and you have to be, that disease has to be killing you to get an assisted suicide. Now, ever since they legalized it, people have been trying to expand the criteria more and more. And you get some doctors that just completely ignore the criteria and they give it to people who wouldn't qualify if they were to go to other doctors or, or be in other provinces. The biggest and most radical change to this came about in the, uh, I can't remember when it passed, but it came about, um, well, it came, actually, no, I do, sorry. It was in March, 2021 that they passed this bill. And then they put a two-year sunset clause in it. So it doesn't take effect until March of next year, March 2023. And in this bill, they're removing the provision that means you have to have a foreseeable natural death. So someone who has a non-terminal disease will be able to get an assisted suicide. It also means that someone with a mental illness is able to get an assisted suicide. Now, this is hugely, hugely problematic for a number of reasons. And the, what I wrote about in, in my piece was that it's a very personal issue for me because some of you may know, I've, I've written about it in the past, but I am a survivor of a, a nearly successful suicide attempt. And I, I had very serious depression for a number of years, which I, I'm grateful that I've been able to move beyond. But I was of the mindset for a time in my life uh, going up to 2010 where I absolutely would have pursued a state-sanctioned uh, death option, which is now on offer. And, you know, I said, even if people are not going to go through the process of getting a state-sanctioned assisted suicide, what the government's doing is normalizing the idea of suicide 
as treatment that even if you are struggling with a mental illness and not you know multiple sclerosis or uh, ALS or anything like that 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 suicide is the answer and and suicide is a viable way to relieve suffering and and so on and it's absolutely ghoulish and it's an example of what happens when you have unchecked ideologues running the show because a lot of activists you know and and by the way, let me tell you that a lot of the mental health advocacy sector is not uh, fire-breathing, right-wing pro-lifers. They're people who are politically left-wing, but they understand that this is not what we should be pursuing when it comes to reforming the value of life in society. And I think it's incredibly, incredibly problematic that this has been pursued and that this has been championed. And I think for most people, this is going to be once they learn about this, no one supports this. Like, that's the thing, is that the liberals in Canada managed to just suspend debate on this thing. But what they're doing is signing a death warrant for a lot of people in this country. And you shouldn't need to be a pro-life activist to see the problems with that. And there have been some people that have piped up. I mentioned the mental health sector. A lot of disability rights activists are, are uncomfortable with this because they don't like the idea of just devaluing life and, and what's already happening in Canada, which is hospitals that are promoting assisted suicide to people. Uh, in one province of uh, Saskatchewan, which has, again, a conservative government, there was a controversy a couple of months ago where their public health information line, you dial, I think it was like 511 or 811 or something on your phone, but this uh, public health information line, you call up, and it was like, press one for this, press two for this, press three for this. And then what happened is there was like, press five if you'd like information about assisted suicide. So now it's like literally in the phone menus of the Canadian healthcare system. And we're not to believe that there is a, a move taking place to normalize death and to normalize suicide and, and not just to normalize it as a, a last resort for people in incredibly tricky situations, but to present suicide as treatment, which is absolutely despicable. Uh, so I thank you for reading that and asking about that, Julia. Uh, oh, we get some UK content now. See, this is the good. Uh, the Rishi Sunak, Justin Trudeau call was like gate, a gateway UK story. Ian writes, hello, Andrew, fellow members. This week in the UK, our conservative government raised taxes as apparently allowing people to keep less of the money they've earned is the best way to deal with the rising cost of living. Yeah, no kidding. Our quote unquote conservative government also paid the French even more money as a bribe to do something about the boats. They happily let sail off which wash up in Kent every day. My question is this, will there ever be an actual conservative party or are we left hoping for the formation of a new credible and functioning party which pursues a smaller state and actually defends the borders? Ian, this is, I mean, not actually a UK question exclusively. This is a, a UK question. It's a Canadian question. It's, it's an American question. And it's quite interesting to me, when you look at how interconnected a lot of the, the problems are in the, the so-called conservative movement, and I mean, one of the challenges was that the uh, real conservatives did very well in the European Parliament. It was the European Parliament that elected Nigel Farage and elected uh, the Brexit Party and UKIP iterations of him and elected a lot of these other people. And they had a success there because it was clear what they stood for. They had a, a clear identity and a clear goal. And I'm grateful they did get uh, in there and, and managed to do that. They, they've not had that same success 
in the UK Parliament. And I think a part of that is, is that you have these very baked-in assumptions about politics and electability that are difficult to shake. The European Parliament was a relatively new thing. So the old, uh, you know, Tory-Labour divide, this uh, presumed dichotomy didn't actually exist in something new. And I'm convinced that if you were to rebuild right now the American political system, you'd have a, a party that was better than the Republican Party, which admittedly is not that hard, that would have a, a fighting shot. If you were to remake the Canadian political system right now, you'd have a party that was more conservative than the Conservative Party and would probably fare better because it would be more authentic. So if you indulge me for a moment, Ian, I'll tell you about the Canadian example and where I think hope sort of lies here. The Canadians have had the, the most successful liberal in recent memory because he beat a conservative in 2015. And that was Stephen Harper. He beat a different conservative in 2019. He beat a different conservative in 2021. So Justin Trudeau has cycled through conservative leaders right now like they are you know, sheets of toilet paper. He just you know rips one off, throws it aside, and, and grabs the next one. And the reason for that, you could talk about the media's role, but the reason for that is that the conservatives have just been weak. In 2015, they were fatigued. They had a, a message that just wasn't really resonating with people. In 2019, they had Andrew Scheer, who, again, very decent guy personally, but just abandoned everything he believed when it came time to run. He was a, a solid conservative and just you know couldn't answer a, a question with a, a straight answer by the time he was the leader. And then in 2021... The Conservatives elected as their leader a guy who agreed with the Liberal on most things, Aaron O'Toole. And everyone thought, okay, well, he's going to, and he put forward a carbon tax. So it's like, it's okay, his, he's the guy, he can, he can defeat the Liberals. They can't call us climate deniers because he's got a carbon tax. They, they can't accuse us of having a pro-life agenda because he's pro-choice. They can't accuse us of doing this because uh, he's doing this. So they, they tried to neutralize all of these politically hot-button issues by fielding a candidate who agreed with the Liberals on all of these hot-button issues. And in the end, it was a miserable failure. But there was a correction that took place. And, and part of it was, I think, connected to the convoy because Aaron O'Toole, and I talked about this when I did a, a full-length interview on the Mark Stein show a few weeks back. When the convoy came about, Aaron O'Toole was ousted by his party because he wouldn't get in he wouldn't stand up and support the truckers and it was clear that at the time that was what the country needed the conservative leader to do so they got rid of him and the guy they have now I have higher hopes for that I've had for a conservative leader in the last decade. His name is Pierre Polyev. He was a supporter of the convoy. He wants to defund the state broadcaster. He is talking about issues that matter. He has so far not changed his positions from when he was in primary mode or what we call it here, the leadership race to now that he is the leader of his majesty's loyal opposition. And again, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm open to being disappointed because sometimes when someone is so good on paper, they can only disappoint you. And, and I think that's especially true of politicians. But I think it's incumbent on conservatives to ensure that there is that base of support. So that when you do have a leader that's prepared to stick their neck out, they don't get it slashed so easily by the media. And, and in the UK context, I think one of the big problems that uh, Britons have to grapple with is this ridiculous system 
to choose a leader. The fact that the voters in the races, that the members of the party only get to choose from two people selected by the caucus is, I think, absolutely absurd. Absurd. So at the end of it, your choice is between elite one and elite two. And, and that was what happened with uh, Liz Truss and uh, Rishi Sunak. You get elite one, you get elite two. And people are forced to just pretend that one is better than the other, when in actual fact, most of them are are fairly dissimilar. And I'm convinced that if in the last leadership race, the actual members were voting from the get-go, they would have voted for Boris Johnson. I mean, like <laughs> Boris Johnson would be the prime minister again. And uh, perhaps that's the argument against uh, changing the system. But I, I think that the point that people need to take away from this is that you're never going to choose the most conservative option when you're choosing from this existing talent pool. It, Trump would never have been elected as leader in a system where the members of caucus had to be the ones to cast the ballots. He never would have done it. You'd have, have, you'd have Rand Paul and Paul Ryan, or you'd have... Uh, maybe you'd have Rand Paul and Ben Sass, or maybe you'd have Mitt Romney. Like you, you'll never get an outsider that can come in. And, and I think that is the key here. You have to get the politics as far away from the establishment as possible in order for there to be any chance of success. Anne writes, uh, Mark had a poor Canadian lady on his uh, GB show earlier this week who was denied a transplant due to her vaccination status. Do you have an update on her case? Is there anything that can be done to help her? So this, oh, that was a very moving interview. The woman's name is Annette Lewis, and she is in Alberta. She's suffering from a, a terminal illness and needs an organ transplant. And uh, in Canada, this is a nationalized process. You, there's no organ repository. You can't go on eBay. You can't, uh, you know, get one from a, a Chinese guy in the back alley. You have to go through the government. And the government has said that she cannot get an organ transplant if she is not vaccinated. Now, Annette says she's never had COVID. She's living a life right now in which she is unlikely to get COVID. But nevertheless, she's been told that this is the best approach. And it was interesting. The first judge who heard her case said that, you know, it's basically a one-size-fits-all solution is what healthcare needs, which is not particularly accurate and also not what I want judges ruling on. She took her case to the Alberta Court of Appeal and also was unsuccessful there. And, and now it sounds like her and her lawyers, or she and her lawyers, are talking about bringing it to the Supreme Court of Canada, where if you follow the Supreme Court of Canada, you'll assume that that is not going to be of use to her, and she'll probably lose that again. So uh, this woman may be getting a death sentence because of the, one of the most egregious manifestations of a vaccine mandate I've ever seen. And we're not talking about you know, giving an alcoholic uh, a liver here. We're not talking about giving a chain smoker a, a lung. We're talking about a woman that is not actually at risk of this thing. No one has told her she's at risk of it. She has managed to survive the last two and a half years without being vaccinated, even while having a terminal condition. So, I mean, as far as what can be done to help her, there are two things that people are doing right now. One is 
uh, putting a lot of pressure on the Alberta government, which has a, a new premier in who's actually a, a friend of mine. Her name is Danielle Smith, and she's actually quite strong on vaccine passports and, and vaccine mandates and that she's against them wholeheartedly. One of the first things she did when she took office was issue an apology to the unvaccinated in Alberta for having lost their jobs and been kept out of restaurants and asked them all to come back to work if they still want to. So she has not at this time, however, done anything to change the policy that was impugning uh, Annette. Now, I will say there's a catch, and I apologize if this gets like too far into the weeds of Canadian policy at a level of granularity that you don't particularly care about. But Danielle Smith just last night gutted the entire board of Alberta Health Services, which is the, the provincial agency for health there. And by gutted, I mean she fired every person on that board and replaced them with an administrator who reports to her. So she's actually cleaned house on the agency here. And I think it'll be very interesting to see if she is willing to take on the requirements for organ transplants as one of her first orders of business because Annette has put a face to this issue. But you have to assume if it's happening to her, it is happening to other people as well. Uh, that is a very good question. And so that's the political side of it. The flip side is the legal side. There still is a challenge going on before the... Um, uh, before the, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Supreme Court of Canada. So her representation is being done through the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, which is the uh, group that gave Mark the George Jonas Freedom Award some years ago. And I know they're fundraising for, for that and all of their other cases as well. So it, it's possible, but I mean, the thing with, with these battles is that you have to hit them on multiple fronts. You can't just say, oh, well, the courts will deal with it because then you're going to find you lose that and you've abandoned everything else. So it's going to be partially a legal battle. It's going to be partially a court uh, battle and a political battle as well. Roberts writes, the Senate race of New Hampshire. Okay, I'll say full first off that I do not actually follow New Hampshire politics as much as Mark does. So I will do my best on this one. The uh, Senate race in the state of New Hampshire is an example of how much good government costs. Democrat uh, Hassan will defeat General Bulldog by 60,000 votes in a total vote of about 650,000. To reach that margin of victory, Hassan spent over $32 million on her campaign as compared to Bulldog's $2 million. This suggests that each vote of Hassan's margin costs $500. Sadly, the beneficiaries of this largesse are not the voters who succumb to the propaganda. Rather, it is the commercial media providers in the tiny New Hampshire market. A windfall of $30 million every two or four years is probably a prominent feature of their business plans. Is media bias explained that simply? Okay, so this isn't actually a New Hampshire question, you... You hoodwinked me there at first. It is a media question. It reminded me, though, of uh, how much Jeb Bush spent uh, on his votes or how much like Michael Bloomberg spent to win American Samoa or something like that. No, it is right. I mean, if you're like a station owner in Iowa or New Hampshire, your life is made and you don't actually have to do anything like you. You just have to produce some form of media the peop enough people will watch that by the time the election season runs around, you can just get your uh, national uh, or get your annual ad budget uh, sorted out in the span of a few months. Especially with, I mean, uh, this is idea of Donald Trump announcing in November 2022 that he's running for president in two years is just like baffling to me. But nevertheless, I, I think it's very true. I don't even know 
if that is connected to the media bias issue. I, I think that's just an example of, of just how wasteful American politics is. And, and I don't say this in oh, the way that I'm some like hippy-dippy, you know, eat the rich, tax the rich type. It's, you know, if people want to make their money and spend their money, that's absolutely fine. But it's amazing that for all that the left likes to talk about the rich paying their fair share and CEOs making too much and all of that, like AOC uh, raises a fortune and spends a fortune. And this is money that doesn't go towards the little people. This is money that goes into the pockets of the media companies and, you know, campaign vendors like sign printers and, and whatever. And no one ever seems to care about those, those uh, dynamics when you're talking about uh, how terrible the uh, rich are. Uh, Pens writes, Andrew, did Jacinda Trudeau deliver financial promises for climate reparations or other globalist initiatives at the G20 conferences? And if so, how much does Parliament have to approve this? I So they all agreed to something worse than that. They agreed to adopt the World Health Organization's international health regulation standards on a global vaccine passport. So all of these people that say we're moving beyond COVID and we're moving beyond mandates, they all sit around and agree to uh, restrict movement uh, by under the guise of streamlining uh, sharing of your data and sharing of communications and all of that across borders. So, I, I mean, I assume that the climate reparation stuff, they're all going to just continue to spend money on in general. I mean, Parliament will have to approve it, but at the same point, Justin Trudeau has the support of Parliament because he has an alliance with the Socialist Party, the, the New Democrats. So he doesn't actually have to do anything to get all of his financial measures passed. Uh, what else do we have here? Um, do, 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 do. <laughs> Here's a fun one. Uh, Alex O writes, do you think Elon Musk will save or destroy Twitter? I will say that he is saving it for me. Because Twitter was just a, a woefully unpleasant place for, for the last several years. And I, I don't know what that says about me that I, I spend so much of my day on it, although not as much as other people in media. But the thing about Twitter that bothered me so much is, is that you'd go on there and it's just people that hate you talking about all the reasons they hate you. And then the platform itself hates you. So if you say something they really hate, they'll just shadow ban you or outright ban you and you know people like Jordan Peterson were suspended and uh, he as of like an hour ago has been allowed back on Twitter so he's tweeting again and now all of these people who were very happy to have their finger on the censor trigger are feeling very uneasy about Twitter. And you see people going to this like ridiculous alternative called Mastodon, which, I mean, it's great to name a tech company after something that is extinct, but uh, you have all these people moving over there and all these other people saying, I'm just going to close my account and be on Facebook. And I'm like, good, good. If you don't want to play in the new town square that is the, twi the Muskian Twitter, then get lost. I don't actually care. And I mean, as far as the, the business side of it, I mean, obviously he's got a financial crunch. He, he paid way too much for this thing, but uh, he is being remarkably transparent about it. And Elon Musk, if you follow him on Twitter, which I encourage you to do if you're on it, he is responding to like the most mundane customer service queries. So someone will be like, oh, uh, you know, I mean, he's like the customer service account of like Delta or American Airlines now. People will say, oh, yes, you know, I'm having trouble with this. And he'll be like, yeah, we're looking into it. Or, oh, yeah, your account's fine now. Or, oh, you can do this. So he's being very hands-on about it. And I mean, this may just be what billionaires do to amuse themselves now. They buy tech companies and then just watch everyone just spin around into a, an absolute fit about it. But I, I think 
you know, ultimately speaking, whatever you think about Elon Musk and whatever you think about Twitter, it can only go in one direction. It, it can only get better because it's just been this fetid swamp. So I, I have high hopes just by virtue of the fact that I don't think it could get any worse. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Uh, I hope you don't mind the Canadian content. Like I said, I, I think I get to be the uh, zookeeper explaining, you know, what the monkeys are doing to each other in the uh, the zoo exhibit here on on this stuff. Uh, Crazy Canuck, oh, Crazy Canuck is actually Canadian, I assume. Uh, as Mark would say, perhaps not his legal name. Are you able to offer any updates as to the investigation into Justin Trudeau's declaration of martial law against the truckers? So right now there is a, a public inquiry underway called the Public Order Emergency Commission, which is investigating Justin Trudeau's usage of the Emergencies Act, which is the successor to the War Measures Act and so on. And this inquiry has been quite interesting. I, I mean, I as, as low as I hold the judicial system in esteem, the inquiry has been very revealing because you can't conjure something out of thin air. So when people have heard the testimony and they've seen the evidence all that's come out have been police officers and executives from you know various government departments saying yeah you know this wasn't really an emergency and yeah it wasn't violent and oh there was no threats and yeah we had our law we had the law already at our hands we didn't need new laws we didn't need new power and, and so far no one is backing up the government's narrative here that they had this unprecedented situation on their hands that they could only use the Emergencies Act to deal with. No one is backing that up. So the federal government's position here is that they could not use any existing laws and any existing powers to deal with the truckers. Now, what they could have done is just gone out and meet with them, or they could have just said, okay, we're ending the vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, but they didn't want to do that. So if they were hell-bent on removing them, they still had policing authority and policing powers. And a lot of the blockades that had set up around the country did not have the Emergencies Act in place when police removed them, which kind of proves that this legislation was not needed. The reason Justin Trudeau did it, and I talk about this in my book, which delves into the Freedom Convoy in a lot of detail, the reason Justin Trudeau did it was because he wanted to freeze their bank accounts. He, he wanted to go after their money, and he wanted to send them a message. These, these you know, nasty, yokel, unacceptable, fringe, blue-collar, uh, rabid, white supremacist, insurrectionist truckers that embarrassed him. And he didn't like that. He couldn't stand for that. And now his use of the Emergencies Act is subject to an inquiry. It's, I mean, the judge is an old-time liberal. So, I mean, assuming he's a professional judge, he can set that aside. But I think when the report comes out, it will not be favorable because Canadians have been watching this and listening to this in real time. And I think that is so important. They've been listening and watching in real time so they know what the evidence is. So if in that final report, the judge comes out with something so out of left field, people will know, well, that's that's not actually how it is supposed to be here. Uh, what else do we have here? Uh, Deborah McKenzie says, I noticed you steadfastly avoiding mentioning Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada, despite their relevance in your last two questions. Why is that? Bernier and the PPC pointed out the made option on the Saskal phone line. And were so vociferous in their criticism that they got the option removed. Uh, a listener asked about the creation of a new conservative type party in Britain. You started talking about Canadian politics, but never mentioned how the People's Party was created as an, as an answer to the absolute failure of the Conservative Party to be conservative. 
I don't hold out much hope for Pierre Polyev. He is yet another conservative of convenience. Well, I didn't steadfastly avoid mentioning Maxime Bernier. I just didn't mention him. I, I consider Maxime a friend. I have interviewed him many times on my show and have given him more coverage than most people in Canadian media are. But you cannot sidestep the fact that Maxime Bernier and the People's Party of Canada have failed to gain traction in a, an electorally meaningful way in Canada's political system. And uh, yeah, I mean, if you want to talk about the PBC, we can. It was created by Maxime Bernier after he saw what he called moral and intellectual or mor moral and intellectual and political corruption uh, in the Conservative Party of Canada. And this was back in 2019. He ran in the 2019 election and got, I think, 1.6% of the vote. He more than tripled his share of the vote in the 2021 election. But in the Westminster system, that was spread out over so many different areas that he, he didn't win a seat. He will run again. And I would love to see the People's Party of Canada elect members of parliament because I would love to see there be some political force that is holding the conservatives to account from the right. But I can't talk about them and not talk about the Green Party, which gets 5% of the vote on the left which is right now of the same electoral significance. And, and I don't say this because I, I don't think they're relevant. I just say it because uh, the fact of the matter is until they are making that difference, they aren't going to be changing the Canadian political culture all that much. And, and I think that's a reality. And yeah, I mean, it was, it was Kelly Lawrence, who was uh, Maxime Bernier's Western Canada lieutenant, to use the Canadian term, that was very forceful on the maid issue on the SAS phone line. But I was talking about assisted suicide. I wasn't talking about how the thing got removed. But absolutely, I'll, I'll give credit where it's due there. And I, I appreciate the question, but just know it's not a deliberate exclusion. I want them to rise to the point where people have to pay more attention to them. And, and that's that. Uh, I think we are out of time here, so I will say to all of you a very, very happy Thanksgiving next week. If you are observing, and if you haven't already checked it out, you can head on over to MarkSteinCruise.com and get all the details about the Mark Stein Cruise down the Adriatic, on which I will be uh, joining Mark and also John O'Sullivan, Michelle Bachman, Tal Bachman, Eva Vlardingerbrook, Alexandra Marshall, and Bo Snerdley. It is going to be a great time. We hope to see you all there. And and in keeping with the Canadian theme here, here is a farewell to a Canadian sunset.
Mark Stein's Clubland Q&A is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.